Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Sheep Thrills. This is the semester in review episode. Uh, my name is Emily Lamb and this is again like the last show of the semester. I'm very excited. I have some very exciting guests on the show today, my family. Um, so I'm going to have them all go around and introduce themselves really quickly. So dad, would you like to start? Hi everybody, I am Emily's dad and I may end up being the dissenting viewpoint on some of these issues this evening. Hello, I am Diane, Emily's mom, and I am very happy to be making my podcast debut on Sheep Thrills. Hey everybody, I'm Sarah. I am one of Emily's older sisters. I am a nurse living in Nashville, um, and I am also super excited to be on the pod. <laughs> Hi, I'm Maggie. I'm Emily's oldest sister. I am a public defender in New York City. And yeah, also very excited to be here. All right, so very excited to have everyone in the same place. We're all spread out across different cities. So it's nice to be in one Zoom room uh, as we talk about some of the main current events over the past semester. So uh, we're going to be talking about kind of a lot of the things that I've covered in the past 11 episodes of the show um, and just kind of get some more viewpoints. And if you're wondering why I am the way I am, I think that this next hour will give you a pretty good idea of um, why, why I exist in this state. So the first thing that I want to talk about today um, is criminal justice. Based on when we're recording this episode, the results of the Derek Chauvin trial literally just got announced um, and he was found guilty on all three charges. Um, and kind of this was a, a good result in a lot of ways. And also, you know, thinking about like the criminal justice system at large, it's maybe an expected result, but not the best result in the long term. Um, so there's been a lot of discussion about, um, you know, what the justice system should look like and whether this was actually, you know, justice or whether this was just like accountability for one action. So Maggie, as the resident lawyer, I was wondering what your thoughts are um, kind of about this issue at large. So I have so many thoughts. The I mean, to answer your very specific question of like, is this justice or is this accountability for a single act? It's like very clearly accountability for a single act. And to call it justice feels like such a stretch to me because nothing is changing, right? Like a actually just outcome would be drastically defunding the police, would be drastically changing our policing and incarceration system in this country, would be drastically changing the way we arm police and the way we send police into communities where they, you know, kill men and women of color. I think that one of the things that frustrated me so much yesterday was the like reaction of not just like victory, but seeing this as like a step towards greatness or like a step along the way to like winning some challenge. Like no policy was created yesterday. No changes were made yesterday. One person who was very clearly, you know, guilty of what he was accused of was convicted of the a crime that he was accused of. But it was not, there was nothing about yesterday made me hopeful. Nothing about it made me um, feel better about the country. It was just one moment that was like a little less sucky than all the other moments. Um, Maggie, I think that's really interesting, like what you said, and obviously you have like a really great perspective as a public defender. Um, 
And I did have a moment, like I, I feel I was at work. And so I try and like kind of keep politics out of work. I feel like I end up letting my like views show at least to my coworkers, but I really try and keep that divide with my patients. And um, I like had my phone on and I saw the result and it was like one of those things where I had a moment of like relief. And then immediately after that sense of relief, I was like, why am I feeling relieved right now? This is what should have happened and what we all should have known happened, was going to happen. Um, and I also, again, I feel like all the reactions, specifically Nancy Pelosi's reaction, and I don't know if you saw the Raiders reaction, the I can breathe post, that kind of stuff, it just irked me so much. And there's no better word for it than irked. So I don't know. Those are just my opinions. And I also, I feel like it's important to note that as a white family, it's very hard for us to like have a real understanding of what communities of color are going through in this country, but it's important for us to be like present for what those communities are telling us is the they're feeling right now. So I hear what you guys are saying completely. I'm not gonna say don't agree with you because I do agree with you, but sometimes you just have to see something positive. You just can't, like I, you know, your father and I were together and I got the alert on my phone and I have felt a great sense of relief. I was very anxious about the results. I thought it was gonna take longer. I was very concerned about a hung jury and I, I felt relief and I, you know, Maggie, I know that you understand all the legal aspect of it and your definition of justice, but I think that this beginning is really important and I want to look at it as something positive and not feel negative about it because I wasn't convinced that that verdict was going to come down. I was worried. So to me, I'm going to just say we need to be a little bit positive. Yeah, I think that's important a really important point of, you know, we can't pour from an empty cup. Um, and it was the same kind of thing when Joe Biden won the election of, you know, people immediately like, well, he won the election, but we can't give him even a second, you know, we have to like immediately start, you know, judging every single thing he does. And like, yes, obviously we need to make sure that he's being held accountable at every single step of the way, but we're entitled to, you know, a couple minutes, a couple days of celebration because that kind of joy will continue to like foster advocacy moving forward. That being said, I think that it's unfortunate that we almost are forced to feel joy because of this um, result, because we knew what this result should have been. And the fact that we were so nervous and we had all this like pent up anxiety about it. Um, and then, you know, we kind of felt this joy after the result was not great because we weren't sure that the criminal justice system was actually going to work because we've seen it not work over and over again in the past. Um, so kind of like broadening this conversation a little bit um, and kind of looking towards the future. So we have this one instance of a police officer being held accountable. And like Maggie said, obviously no policy was created um, from that one instance. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are in terms of whether or not um, this one instance will kind of give the movement energy uh, and give like elected officials that energy to push more actual policy forward, um, moving forward, or whether you think this is just going to be one isolated event and then that's kind of going to be it. 
I personally feel like the opposite is going to happen, unfortunately, and we've already seen that happen in Florida. I was listening to the radio the other day and I was hearing about, I, I can't remember what the governor's name is. Emily, can you remind me? DeSantis. Okay, yes, DeSantis. Um, how he was, he pushed through a law, like basically making a, it a felony to um, be involved in any kind of protest, like peaceful or otherwise. I mean, and then it made it also okay to drive through crowds when they're blocking roads, which I feel like it's just like asking white supremacists to commit vehicular manslaughter. And that's an, a, a direct reaction to what happened this summer. And I also feel like the result is also kind of a direct reaction to what happened this summer in that I feel like it proved that protest works. Um, not that I know, you know, what every jury member's reaction and interaction with protests this summer was, but that's my personal um, opinion. Yeah, I think it's interesting, um, like separating out, I think the murder of George Floyd and the protests that arose out of that from the like conviction that we saw yesterday and like, I feel like I think those are like two separate moments, not just because they're separated by what, eight months, but you know, just in scope and what happened. I do think that we saw like some positive policy changes over the summer, but I think that the opposite will happen from this conviction because it gives people cover, right? It gives you the cover to say like the system works, which the system doesn't work. If the system worked, George Floyd would not be dead today. If the system worked, all of the, you know, people, the children who've been killed in the past few weeks by cops would be alive today. This one cop who, you know, was indoctrinated in this like system and was, you know, upheld by other police officers and all of the other police officers who are like him. I mean, we, you know, we as a family talk a lot about the you know, bad apple theory, but like the fact is that one bad apple spoils the bunch. Like that is the full phrase. And when we say, I, I think that there's gonna be a lot of cover to say like, well, this was one bad apple, but we convicted him and we're gonna send him to prison for who knows how many years. And therefore we fix it. Which again, this is what goes back to my original point of why I don't think this is justice because it doesn't get to the root of the problem. And it, I think it does give people, I, I get, I mean, putting aside Nancy Pelosi's like ridiculous everything about what she said, a lot of it I think was couched in, and the same thing with the Raiders thing, this couched in this idea of like, oh, this gives us cover. We can like pretend it's over now, we fixed it. Like racism's over, the police are fine. We convicted one guy so we can move on. Um, and that's, that's what I'm very afraid is gonna be happening coming from this week. Isn't the point of the trial though to, to adjudicate and an issue um, that, a very specific issue. So in this case, it was the Chauvin Floyd um, it, you know, issue, right? The, the trial, I don't think, right, is never intended to take on an Uber issue. It's meant to take on a specific issue of jurisprudence. I, I, I think that for more out of that is, is probably not appropriate because it was just literally, is Derek Chauvin guilty or not guilty of the act that he was accused of? That's what the trial was supposed to do. And that's what I think it did. I agree with you, but I also 
don't think you're understanding me. Like, I'm not saying the trial should have done anything differently. The trial couldn't have done anything differently. But my point is that the trial itself is small beans, right? Like the trial itself is, you know, one exactly what you're saying. It's one isolated thing that's very narrow in scope and doesn't get to the heart of the real problems that we're facing with racism and policing in this country. So let's talk about what should change, right? Like what things should happen. So I, you know, I never am as up to date on every little thing like you guys are, but one of the things that really bothered me were the other police officers, right? The, the new police officers that were part of that. And I read something that, you know, that's part of the change that needs to happen is that police need to be, need to be accountable, that that's a, a mandate that they um, kind of step up and say, no, you're using too much force. You know, there's so many things like that could, ch that should change that I think, you know, dad might be right that this was just a trial and Maggie's right too, that we need to see more change, you know, and, and let's, you know, think about all the things that should be changing. Right. I think that's a really good point because obviously moving forward, the only way that, I mean, everyone will have different opinions on this, but there's like a lot of ways that we can move forward from this point. So is it through legislation and through changing police training, or is it through kind of wrap, you know, drastically defunding the police and completely changing how police forces are, um, kind of put together in different communities. And I think that like, that's going to be a fight that we're in for a long time, but at some point we kind of do need to make a decision and then just move forward with it. Um, and I think of course, like the argument over incremental versus drastic change is something that's, there's that debate happening at in so many different topics on so many different levels. Um, but I think that if we continue to like do all this infighting, nothing's going to happen. So I will say like just kind of a closing note on this topic um, that we do need to start like actually setting up some infrastructure for changing these issues and then moving forward with it as opposed to just kind of continuing talking in circles um, about what the most effective way to create this kind of change is. So that was a great conversation. Thank you guys. Now I wanna move on to talking about the one, the only Joe Biden. Um, and he is now coming up on his hundredth day in office in a couple of weeks, I think. I never remember what the exact date is, um, but he's done a lot in that hundred days. Um, and he's, you know, it's been controversial. He's done too much for some people. He's not done enough for other people. I think we have a very broad range of um, viewpoints on this issue uh, in, this, in this podcast today. Um, so just kind of in general, how do you guys feel about Biden's first hundred-ish days in office? Has he lived up to his campaign promises? Too much, too little, just generally, what are your thoughts? Dad? So um, I have kind of a lot uh, a lot to think about with, uh, with uh, the president. Um, I think that he's a lot more left, honestly, that, than he was advertised to be. Um, a lot more you know, frankly, I'll, I'll use the word radical. I'm not sure radical is right, but he clearly, to me, campaigned as a kind of a back to normal, middle of the road, I'm going to put some water on the fire kind of candidate. And he came out, you know, rootin' tootin', kind of, um, you know, looking to be, he wants to be kind of a liberal lion in the model of FDR and LBJ. Um, and I think that's really where he is, uh, where he's going now. So, I mean, the, you know, the 
the amount of money that we're talking about spending here in the first, what is it, 115 days? Um, so in the first six months, we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna build back better with uh, more money than has ever been spent in the history of mankind is, is kind of crazy. Um, the border is a disaster and it's not really covered in the news. Um, spending is just off the hook. So, so I would say that Joe Biden gets good grades from the media who, who props him up. But I think when we look at it in, you know, in six months from now, it's really kind of not that good job performance um, so far. That's my, that's my take. Okay, so I strongly disagree with basically every single thing you just said. Um, first of all, I think that, uh, you know, Emily, I'm a little worried about your podcast with the soundbite that's going to come out of this. Is somebody calling Joe Biden a radical who is arguably the most moderate person to live? Um, I'm going to start because mom says I'm not positive enough. So I'm going to start with the positive. I am extremely impressed with Joe Biden's COVID response. I really think that, you know, like we knew that the Trump presidency was incompetent, but I think that I had gotten lulled into a sense of like, but there's no way for us to roll out these vaccines faster, but there's no way for us to get a handle on this. And, you know, Joe Biden, like setting goals and blowing past them has been so impressive to me. I think I read, right, that like 50% of adults in America haven't received at least one dose. I think that like all of that is so hopeful to me. I think that the COVID response, I had, yeah, I was, re it has far surpassed my expectations. Um, in terms of the rest of Joe Biden's presidency, I don't know. I think he's kind of shown himself to be exactly what we thought we were getting, which was neutral. Um, I think that the immigration situation and the, again, putting kids in cages and the, you know, capping refugees and not capping refu refugees shows a, you know, a return to like American xenophobia, as well as just like a lack of conviction from the Biden presidency. Um, you know, I'm frustrated that we haven't seen more leadership from him on some really progressive issues like the um, stimulus checks and, you know, not that I ever actually thought that he would cancel student loan debt, but at least like a conversation about student loan debt. Like I just, you know, I don't know that I, I can say I'm really disappointed because my expectations were low, but I did feel like we were going to be in this position, right? That we have like so much like liberal power in Washington for the first time in such a long time. I thought that we might you know, actually take a chance on like the progressive vision of like what America could look like and like what this world could be and that we could actually start fighting for that like better vision. And instead, um, I feel like most of what we've been seeing is the status quo. Um, I think it was, honestly, it was just interesting to listen to both of you back to back, Dad and Maggie, because neither of you were happy. And I mean, obviously, I tend to lean more towards Maggie and that Joe Biden is not a radical. But um, I think that the problem with partisan politics is that people who get elected, Trump notwithstanding, obviously, are going to be too moderate. I think that nobody's going to be happy with a moderate candidate ever. Um, I 
And so like, you know, I'm a full-blown socialist. I just like, I'm a Bernie bro till I die. And I want that America. I, I don't know. I, to dad's point about the spending, obviously money does not grow on trees. And we know this, but also every president in the last 30 years has run up the deficit. And we are in a once in a lifetime global pandemic, which again, global pandemic is two words saying the same thing, but that requires money. It, it does. Um, and putting our country back on track, it's going to cost money. And I know I say this all the time and everyone's like, what the hell? I would give up all of my savings so that nobody would ever experience homelessness or hunger in our country. I would make half of what I make and I do not make that much. You should pay your teachers and nurses more. Um, but yeah, uh, to talk more about Joe Biden, I mean, I'm not impressed, but I knew that I wasn't going to be. He's sleepy Joe, man. I mean, like, I, I have no real thoughts. <laughs> so kind of going to back to Maggie's point a little bit about status quo and about the fact that we've kind of maintained that status quo um, with a lot of like more liberal policies. And to Sarah's point about like electing moderate candidates, because that's what our two-party system like forces us to do. Um, do you feel that this is the issue of the executive branch and of the presidency? Or do you think that it is a larger issue within the federal government? So a lot of this like stagnation is also the fault of you know Republicans in the Senate. Or do you think that Joe Biden should have taken more initiative to kind of like push through that red tape? Because um, from my perspective, I'm also not 100% satisfied with his performance. But from my personal perspective, I see a lot more fault within um, Republicans in the House and in the Senate versus Joe Biden's actual job performance. But I don't know if you guys have any thoughts or feelings on that issue. Well, I'll I mean, jump in. I'll, oh, I'm sorry, Maggie. I'll, I'll jump in there, Emily, uh, to, to answer that. I, I mean, I can't really, I can't imagine how you guys are thinking that um, there's any blame or, or credit. So blame or credit anywhere right now. Whatever um, the president wants, he gets, he's doing. Either he writes it in uh, to an executive order or he gets um, the Democratic controlled Congress to kind of you know back up back up what he wants. Now, forget the filibuster for, for, for the moment. So put that put that to the side. But all the spending programs that we're talking about, um, uh, you know, that are either passed already or on the table and will be passed, um, is pretty much everything that the left the left wants to do. Whether it's whether it's um, uh, President Biden's White House, or or you know, or the you know, or the Congress. We'll come back to Congress, I think, um, in the next next segment, um, Emily. But right now, I think this is this is the Joe Show, and it's pretty much everything he wants, uh, he gets. And so every either credit or detriment is firmly um, you know, at the desk desk of the president at this point. And and really, there's 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 no one else uh, at the moment. I just have okay. to jump in and make the Ariana Grande reference. Like he wants it, he gets it. Okay, Maggie, whatever you have to say, that's actually smart. <laughs> um, well, I actually have a shocking thing to say, which is that I mostly agree with that. I think that saying put aside the filibuster is a ridiculous thing to say. But aside from that, 
like he is right over the past you know several presidencies probably starting with bush and certainly furthered by obama the power of the executive branch has grown there is a lot that can be accomplished right now by executive order and beyond that the reason why we have or like our party structure considers the president to be the head of the party is because that's where the leadership is supposed to come from so like yes joe biden has enormous power to do what he will do or won't do and you you should have inspired leadership right like when we think about Obamacare, like that took massive leadership from Barack Obama. Now, again, I don't want to say that like Joe Biden should accomplish like a career defining accomplishment in the first three months of his presidency. Like that seems a little ridiculous, but you know, I'm, I'm not seeing, yeah, I'm not seeing inspired leadership from him and I'm not seeing real action from him. So yes, but of course you're right, Emily. Like, of course, the gridlock in Congress is has been and continues to be a problem. And of course the filibuster, well, we can debate this, but like of course the filibuster makes it more difficult for one party to make progress, right? Which then leads to, yes, there are like some serious individuals elected to federal office who make accomplishing positive objectives for our country very difficult. I I still and I there are you know, our times in the past that I've been like, we can't really blame one individual person. But in this point, I just like, I haven't seen Joe Biden fighting tooth and nail against these like individuals who are making life very difficult. Yeah, he's just doing a lot of walking and a lot of people are taking pictures of it. That honestly, that's the thing that annoys me the most about this presidency is that the public marketing people decided that they were walking towards the problem. It just, every time I see that picture, I'm just like, Kamala, please stop walking, sit down. Your feet must be tired. Anyway, that's just me. I'm just actually wondering if anybody could explain the point. Cause every time the like official White House Twitter shows another little video of like Joe and Kamala walking down the street. I just, I don't, and like they have to see the jokes, right? Like why have they not moved on? Like I don't, it, it's very illogical to me. My thought, just as we're quickly tangenting onto this, is that they started out with it being genuine and then they saw the jokes and now they're in on it. You can't see my air quotes because this is the podcast, but they're in on it. You know, they're they're part of the joke. It's quirky now, but it's not. My also thought with that, the poor comms team, they don't have that much material because it's not like all the, the politicians are like going to like fun, amazing places and meeting with lots of fun, amazing people. They're they're sitting in the same room and talking to the same people over and over again because of, you know, a pandemic, but whatever. Yes. I think that that was a a good point to end on in terms of the executive branch. So now let's move on a little bit to talking about Congress and talking about partisanship. So Congress is a mess as it always in, as it always is, and as it probably always will be. We touched on this a little bit, um, but what do you guys think about Congress right now? Um, do you think that polarization has gotten better or worse? Um, worse, probably, but I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts. And I'm interested in hearing, you know, where you think that this body is heading and whether, you know, the Senate is the world's greatest deliberative body or, you know, it's it's moved on from that point. 
So I will jump in on this because I think that this transitions from the last uh, uh, issue, which was was Joe Biden, and I'm going to separate it into A and B. So, so um, it is you know. We're, so we'll talk about Congress first, then I'll talk about partisanship because that's the way I've got it in my in my brain here. But um, as you know, as I said before, I think Joe is the news. He has been the news. He is the news. Um, and um, Emily, to your point, you know. Jen Psaki stands up there every day, basically says the same thing over and over because that's all there is to say, right? Congress has honestly been nowhere, except for in the last week, Maxine Waters and Nancy Pelosi kind of spouting off their mouths, but it put Congress kind of back in the conversation at least a little bit, but it's been the Joe show and and maybe it should be, but it, it is. So so Congress is kind of nowhere, has taken a, a big back seat you know, to that. As far as partisanship is concerned, when I was your guys' age, when I was younger, I was, you know, I was convinced that um, there should not be term limits, right? That the American people should vote for whom they vote for and who they think is going to represent them well. I have come a complete 180 on that in my lifetime. Um, so I'm an older, I think, wiser person now, and um, I, I don't think that there's it's certainly not better partisanship than frankly ever. I mean, we, you know, we always think history started yesterday, but if we go back to the beginning of the country, I mean, there's been a lot of very uh, partisan sniping from whatever political party we've been talking about. So no, it's certainly not better. But if we want to be a little bit more united, I, you know, I believe that we need term limits to help people work together more and to have people come serve their country, thank you for your service, and now move on and let other people you know, come, in, come in and do that. And I think, may, I, I don't know if I'm right or wrong on this, but I think that a, a term limit world will get us to a better uh, working place. That's my take. Oh. I totally agree with dad with the term limits. I think maybe we all do, it might be something the whole family agrees with, but um, no, Emily, you're not so sure. But one of the things that, you know, we've talked about that really bothers me is that there is no compromise, right? It's just, I'm gonna stick to my party line. And I just feel like nobody is even trying to care. And I feel strongly that Congress needs to compromise. People need to go to the other side. People need to talk to their, you know, listen to their constituents and make changes in their beliefs that not just everything. I mean, there are so many times that we read the news and we think, how could they possibly just stick to the party line? And so, you know, I think that we need the filibuster because I think that we need to force compromise and we need to force that bigger majority. And you know, that's my opinion, because if we if we don't know, we're never going to compromise and everything is just going to be like dad said, the Joe show, because it's going to be decided in that way. So I, I kind of want to say, oh. OK, Maggie, you go ahead. Uh, I'll just say my one thing then, which is that it's nice that dad is pretending that he only wanted like was interested in term limits when he was young like us. But I distinctly remember being 10 years old and telling him that we should have term limits and him disagreeing with me. So if his position has changed, it's because 10-year-old Maggie was very, very smart, thus bringing us to the overall conclusion, as always, that everything good that happens with this family is thanks to me. You're welcome. Oh my gosh. May I respond to that? Child crow. Calm down, Maggie. My response to that is, Maggie, any smarts that you've got, you've gotten from me in the first place, ergo, 
it is my decision. And once again, we come full circle. If you're wondering why I am the way I am, this interaction is a pretty good, a, a, a pretty good uh, depiction. Okay, so I kind of want to go to mom's point a little bit about like coalition building, all that kind of stuff. The filibuster, I personally disagree with. If it was a, a speaking filibuster, uh, like it was in, you know, the days of old slash like a couple years ago, I think that that makes more sense because you actually have to have conviction to stand up and talk for 20 hours and actually show that you care about the issue enough to want to hold it up uh, versus what the filibuster is now, which is like, mm, I don't really like it. I'm going to put an anonymous hold on this bill. Um, but kind of going back in, you know, the last Senate, it was a lot of well, the Republicans are in charge, and so the Democrats have to compromise with them. And now the, the, the Democrats are in charge, and it's a lot still of the Democrats have to compromise with the Republicans. And I think the Republican Party, a lot of us will agree, I think my dad will agree as well in some ways, that the Republican Party has changed a lot in the past however many years. And it's not a true, you know, depiction of like, you know, authentic conservatism. It's, it's, maybe not as good of an organization anymore. Um, so even though the Democrats are in control, do you think that they still should be forced to compromise with the Republican party that doesn't align with any of their beliefs? Um, and also, you know, a, a party that has not made any effort to, um, you know, collaborate with them. Um, I, Emily, and I know that you and I have talked about this because I feel like I get a lot of my positivity from mom in that, you know, reaching across the aisle, we should get rid of that saying because there should be no aisle. You have to sit next to someone who you don't like. I just think that that would help coalition building. I don't know. It's kindergarten rules, but they are there for a reason. I also feel like to your point, Emily, about the Republican Party changing, I feel like it's maybe not changing fast enough because while I, I feel like, you know, I understand a few conservative values, you know, uh, not all of them, maybe not most of them, but the fact that you have to run down that party line and you have to say, you know, I'm, I'm pro-life if I'm pro-small government, you know, like those things don't really mean the same things almost at all. So kind of breaking down the two-party system in whatever ways that we can, I think will help to have a bigger impact on really establishing a government by the people and for the people. So Emily, of course they have to compromise because no state is 100% Republican or 100% Democrat and you have to represent everyone. You have to represent everyone. And it really bothers me that you would think, or anyone would think that there should be no compromise and that the Democrats, should, that the Republican party is always wrong. You know, the, there's not such a huge um, mandate, okay? So I think that if you're not willing to look at, you know, half the country, there's something wrong. Okay, so then I'm clearly going to be the unpopular one here to say that I think that compromise is an overrated value. I think that um, we don't elect, if we wanted to just elect people to represent what like every single person believes, then we would do a referendum on every single vote or at least more referendums than we have in, I mean, none of us grew up in a state that has referendums. I think in our like school budget we did, but you know, we that's not a factor. And we, so we vote for people who we hope 
will stick to their values. And this is, I mean, this is, I guess, my issue that I've changed a lot on. And I, you know, when I was applying for college and I had to like write essays on like what I thought was like the greatest issue facing our country, I always said hyperpartisanship. And, you know, like the hardest interview I ever had was somebody looking at me and being like, wait, so you think that people just shouldn't have values anymore? And I think that that's kind of what we're saying when we're saying that everybody should compromise every time. Now, I don't think that that necessarily means that there's no space for collaboration. Um, and I think that, you know, a really great example of this is marijuana legalization. Um, you know, years ago, Kamala Harris and Rand Paul, of all people, co-wrote an op-ed about the legalization of marijuana. Because if you believe in small government, you should want to decriminalize most drugs. And if you believe in racial justice, you should want to decriminalize most drugs. So like there's areas where you can form really good collaboration. I just don't think that those collaborations should come with a, let me compromise my values, especially when so many of the the Republican Party's values um, and policies are rooted in, you know, not just like, simple policy disagreements, but like fundamental differences in belief on people's humanity. It's a little bit of a wide berth, Maggie, but because we're trying to be nice for Emily and because this is a time to show, we'll not take on every single, um, you know, dog whistle that you've, that you're blowing here. Um, But the idea of, um, I'm kind of with, with mom a little bit on this is, you know, you know, if you if you take everything to the micro level, right? So you take our family and like where we're going to go to dinner or what we're going to have, right? Um, you know, you have to compromise a little bit. So sometimes the guy over there or the girl over there are going to be a little bit unhappy with the decision, but this is the decision we make. I actually like the idea, Maggie, of the, the word choice that you used between uh, collaboration uh, you know, using that idea, that word collaboration, I kind of kind of like that. And I think there can be a lot more um, collaboration if we go back to term limits and everybody isn't worried about getting reelected um, every two, four years or, or six years or whatever it is, um, and that they actually wanted to do some good before they, um, you know, you know, said their farewells and went back to, to the private sector. So uh, again, I'll, I'll end it there. Thank you. You're welcome, Dad. Um, I just wanted to bring up a point that I know Mom and I have discussed ad nauseum. Because again, Mom loves positivity, which is great, and I feel like I'm a pretty positive person too. But I think you, Mom and Dad, always will say, "You guys just can't be friends with anybody." And it's like, I mean, sorry, I'm not going to be friends with a racist. <laughs> like I just. And I feel like a lot of, not all, obviously, but a lot of conservative values, especially in Tennessee this week, this Dennis, the Tennessee state legislation is, meet, is meeting right now, and they have passed multiple laws um, like demonizing and dehumanizing the LGBTQ plus community. And that's been really, really hurtful. And because, you know, like these are humans and children in school who want to learn about people like themselves. And Tennessee said, nope, you can't use a textbook that talks about anyone who identifies as gay. Like to like to use the phrase whitewash to mean washing everything out of history other than white straight men, that really annoys me. And that's a policy issue. And that's 
because of Republican values that don't reflect who the American people are. So when we're talking about reaching compromise in that sense, like you can't compromise with someone who doesn't think that you're a human being. So that's where it kind of loses value, is my opinion. That's the end of the line. You know, I still want everyone to be friends with one another, bake a cake with rainbows and butterflies, but you know, when you don't think that some of your constituents deserve rights, that's, you know, where we have to kind of draw the line. Yeah, it kind of goes to the same question that we've talked about a lot, like in terms of, again, like educational systems is like, should we be having debates in government classes about whether certain people deserve rights? Is that an appropriate conversation to be having in a school setting? And the answer is like, probably not. Because, you know, you can't debate people's human values, you can't debate people's human rights, because if you're if you're setting up a system and it's kind of talking about education specifically, if you set up an environment in which um, people aren't valued in their safe spaces, in their classrooms, then how can you expect them to, you know, own themselves and have that autonomy when they go out into their real lives? But okay, so the next thing that we're going to talk about, COVID corner, obviously a large issue and the front of all of our minds as we're all sitting in our homes. Um, the coronavirus pandemic has been happening for over a year. There's a lot going on with vaccinations and with, you know, general COVID policies that have been coming up and going away over the past several months. So kind of the one of the major topics that I've talked about on past episodes, um, but in terms of vaccination, something that's been very controversial has been mandating vaccines in schools and GW just announced that they were going to be mandating vaccines, uh, which I personally am very much in support of. Um, but I'm wondering kind of what your thoughts are in terms of mandating vaccines in schools. Um, and then we have touched on this a little bit, but kind of how you think the Biden administration overall handled COVID um, and about just kind of the, the social, political, economic changes that have happened because of the pandemic, which is a lot of questions you can pick and choose whatever you guys would like to respond to. Um, so I have been vaccinated since December. So my relationship with the vaccine, I feel like is really different from the rest of y'all, <laughs> just because I, I'm a nurse. So I'm like, you know, I like to joke that I'm on the back line of the front line because I am working in a hospital. I have had patients who are COVID positive, but I'm not working in a COVID unit. Um, for me, it was a no brainer to get it, but it's also was never required by my management at work. Um, I would say that fairly quickly, most of my coworkers did get vaccinated, although my manager did send out a bunch of emails saying like, hey, we want to get to 80% vaccination, this kinds of thing. So there were some healthcare professionals who were pretty reserved about it early. And I think that's fairly normal. Just seeing as I was among the first wave of people to receive the vaccination. Um, like mom mentioned earlier, I got the Pfizer vaccine um, and I had no reaction to either dose. So I'm pretty much like, I love telling people that I had no reaction um, because I feel like it kind of bolsters that positivity about it because people get so scared about it. Um, I do think that mandating vaccines will help to open things up or, um, earlier. I'm not sure that um, it's gonna happen or it can happen. Um, obviously the vaccines have been proven with the longevity that we have to be safe. 
um, but we don't have the same longitudinal studies that we do for other uh, mandated vaccines like flu vaccines, like the measles vaccine, th those kinds of things. So um, from a, like I personally would support mandating vaccines and or at least like making them extremely readily available to everyone, um, which Emily, I'm sure you can talk about how it's not super readily available to you yet, but you're kind of, again, lowest on the totem pole. Um, but I just don't know that it's something that's going to happen or can happen within our current system of government. So I feel pretty strongly that it shouldn't be mandatory, that I don't think that we have enough you know, um, evidence of what's going to happen with the vaccine in the long run. I like the fact that I had the choice. I chose to be vaccinated, but that was my choice. And I think taking away that choice is really a problem. I think it's okay for schools to maybe say, if you want to be on campus, you need to be vaccinated. But also it really bothers me that GW is saying vaccines should have to be mandatory, but they're not giving you any opportunity to get it. So fine, if you're gonna make it mandatory, you like Sarah said, it has to be readily available. It has to be come to campus two weeks early, get your vaccine, you know, um, quarantine on campus for those two weeks. Like the fact that these schools are saying, make it mandatory. And, you know, we hope it's gonna be easy for every, every student to get the vaccine. You know, I, that really bothers me because, you know, you, did, you can have the choice and I, taking away the choice feels wrong to me. And my employer, I mean, she's asked a lot of very like personal questions of people of what vaccine have you had? When were you vaccinated? If you chose not to, why exactly are you choosing not to? And that bothers me. I don't think that anybody has a right to ask me that. And again, I chose to be vaccinated. So I feel good about that decision. If it was mandatory, I might not feel as good about the decision. Yeah, I don't necessarily agree with your entire point there, mom, but I do agree with, especially with schools, like making it available to students. Um, and something for GW that's really important is that there's like a pretty big population of international students. Um, and the only vaccines that they're accepting are ones that are specifically approved within the United States. And I just have a feeling that's, that's gonna create a lot of issues. Um, obviously I'm not like super aware of like what the entire situation is with vaccines worldwide, um, but I know that A, a lot of international students might not be able to access any vaccine because there's vaccine shortages in a lot of countries. And two, they might get a vaccine that isn't like necessarily F FDA approved, which is gonna create a whole bunch of issues. Um, so I do think that's important of like, if you want to, come to campus, you need to get vaccinated, but GW Hospital will give you that vaccination again, if you come to campus early. So I do agree with that point very much that um, if GW or any of the schools in DC are mandating vaccinations, that they should make sure that they do everything possible to make sure that their students are vaccinated. And if that means giving a dose from GW Hospital, then that's what that is, you know? So Emily, if you live in Europe and you go to GW and you get the AstraZeneca vaccine, that's not been approved by our FDA, you're not going to be allowed on campus in GW? I'm not sure exactly how it's all going to actually work out um, because I there's, you know, there's a, ho a whole bunch of different ways that you can say like, oh, I, you know, have this, you know, I have an excuse, I have this like reason why this vaccine, whatever. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure, but based on the email that they sent us, which you know, is like limited information as always with everything. Um, it seems like the people who did get that AstraZeneca vaccination are going to have to like 
get special approval from the school. I'm not sure how that's going to work out, but I do foresee it being an issue. Although I understand like why they're doing what they're doing with that. Like I understand why they're necessitating uh, vaccines that have been approved by the FDA because they don't want to get in any like legal trouble with stuff like that. Um, but I'm not sure how that's all going to play out. I don't know that many international students um, and I don't know who, anyone who's gotten the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, but I think that will all kind of play out definitely in the next couple of months as people like actually come to terms with having to like upload their you know vaccination um, information, all that. So to be honest, I don't really know how that's going to all work out. So I just want to say, like, I, I definitely hear what you're saying, mom, about like being uncomfortable about it being mandatory. But if we want to look just from the school perspective, there are already so many vaccines that you need to take to, especially to live on campus, right? Like, I mean, the, all the things you have to get just when you move into dorms, right? The meningitis stuff that you don't get growing up and the MMR stuff. And right, like now to start kindergarten, you need to get the chicken pox vaccine, right? There's all these things. Like this is not a change. And yes, I understand that there are differences that those are, you know, vaccines that have existed longer and that we have more data on. But I, I feel like when people start talking about requiring vaccines for schools, we start acting like it's a novel concept. And it's not. Even the flu vaccine, which is not mandatory in a lot of places, but, you know, mom was mandatory for you when you worked at a nursing home. Um, I don't know how I feel about employers mandating the vaccine. I'm, like, very much on the fence about it because it does make me a little uncomfortable, right? Like, be like, my childhood libertarian doesn't like that. But on the other hand you know, people who are choosing not to get the vaccine are putting the rest of us at risk, risk, right? And the vaccine is effective. It's not 100% effective, right? My roommate's mom just tested positive for COVID today after getting the vaccine. Like it does happen. And I, I think that there is a, you know, we were talking about compromise earlier. Everybody who's getting the vaccine is being forced to compromise their own safety, where the people who are ignoring science, ignoring, um, you know, recommendations of doctors are not needing to compromise anything and are, you know, we're not posing any risk to them, but they're posing a risk to us. And I find that really frustrating. So I'm not sure, you know, my employer will never mandate that we get the vaccine. She's made that very clear. Um, but I don't know, I don't know. I think that there are um, real reasons to encourage it. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see what, venues and things do right because I also think that you know I feel differently if my employer mandates me to get the vaccine or if Madison Square Garden says you can't buy a ticket here unless you get the vaccine like there is a fun like and that you know I don't know I saw a tweet I don't know if this is true dad you can fact check this for me but I think that City Field is requiring either a negative COVID test or a vaccination yeah. which I think is great um but I and you know we're, and we of, you know, I don't know if we've started talking about vaccines for travel yet, but again, these are things that have existed. And I don't know, I don't, I, I just think that when we talk about mandating vaccines, we get into this headspace of it feeling like there's a mandate for medical care that's brand new. And that, you know, that like we who choose to protect ourselves have no rights and the people who are making other choices have 100% rights. And I just, I just don't think it's that um, straightforward. So let, I'll, I'll respond to that, uh, Maggie, on, on the city field thing specifically. 
Um, yes, you either need a negative COVID test within 72 hours of, of game time, which I had to take last week um, and show at, you know, to some, you know, teenager at, you know, at the front, at the front gate to, to get in. Um, or you need a, you know, a proof of vaccination, which again, for those who've been vaccinated, you know, this little piece of paper that says CDC on it is kind of like something you get in a cereal box. I, I don't understand it, but fine, that's proof. Um, so anyway, that, that's the city field thing. I don't, I don't understand. Um, yes, and plus it's outdoors. So you talk about science, that's insanity because there's 10,000 people in an outdoor stadium. No one's getting COVID there anyway, but put that aside. That, that's their decision to make. Um, I'm kind of with your mother guys on, on this and you know, Emily, I'm with your mother on this that I'm not for really mandating this. Um, I don't think people are really putting anybody at risk as long as to Maggie's point, we're following the science and we're taking care of people who are really at risk. Getting COVID and getting sick from COVID are two different things. I don't, uh, uh, I think that you guys are conflagrating the science on, on this, you know, kind of I think that I'm very, not angry, but you know, okay, so I understand having a negative test before going to City Field. That makes total sense. Part of all of the venues reopening is that they're not allowing bags. What the hell is that gonna do for COVID? We talk about the science, that has nothing to do with it. And that's just sexist. Women can't bring in um, tampons. Put it in your pocket. That is horrifying to me. People with medications, people with children who need to bring a diaper bag. It makes me crazy that people are like, oh, it's going to preserve safety. So you can only bring in a three ounce clear bag. It's like, okay, you're not the TSA, it's city field. Let me bring in a small backpack or a purse. Not to mention the sexism inherent in pockets anyway. I know I'm going off the rails with this. Emily, you're going to have to cut all of this, but that's, that's my take. Um, I did not know that that was a requirement. That seems like a very strange rule. I just, this is another minor issue, but one I feel strongly about. I am all for different things requiring you to get the vaccine, right? Schools, city fields, Krispy Kreme, free donuts. However, that CDC card should be wallet sized. It is such an annoying size. I do not understand why they made it that size. They knew that people were gonna be using it more regularly. I have a friend who has like a phone app now. I don't know how that's working for him. I've got to ask him, but it is truly infuriating to me. And I know that there are so many real issues that we need to worry about, especially with the vaccine. Like there's a lot going on in the world, but that the size of that card does fill me with like a deep white rage every time I look at it. All right, those are excellent, excellent contributions to the discourse, everybody. Um, really just just top notch, top notch. Okay, so let's move on from COVID. Although those are all, again, great points, good conversation. Um, so let's, okay, let's broaden it up. Let's talk generally about the past year of all of our lives, which have been weird and not so great a lot of the time, but we had the pandemic, we had the summer of really like intense, you know, protests and, you know, conversations about racial justice. We had the 2020 election and kind of all that came along with it. We had the insurrection on the Capitol at the very beginning of the year. Um, 
so in light of everything that is that has happened over the past year, I'm interested in what you think about what has changed politically, what has stayed the same politically, um, and kind of why why those things happened and where we should be going from here. Um, if that makes sense, if you guys have any thoughts about that. Um, so I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm like a burn it all down socialist, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed and nothing will change until we elect Bernie Sanders to the presidency. At um, 90 years old? Yeah, sure. Let's let's weekend at Bernie's with him. Come on. It would still be more progressive than our current president. But anyway, I personally feel like obviously a lot has happened this year. But also I was talking to my friend today and I was like, when did you get your dog six months ago? She was like, three weeks ago. Like the progression of time no longer means anything to me. And I also feel like just my activities of daily life, because I'm working in person, have not changed that much. I think maybe I've become a little bit more introverted, especially because I have moved to be living alone during this year. I spend a lot of time by myself, but I'm kind of okay with that. Um, I don't know. It's it's definitely been an odd year and I'm looking forward to things opening up again and drinking a vodka lemonade on a rooftop somewhere. But um, generally for me, nothing has changed. But between last presidency and this presidency and throughout the year, there's been a lot of drama and a lot of political intrigue. But for my personal day-to-day -day life, uh, I have not been affected, which again, speaks to my privilege. So um, I'm going to be a little heavy on this because when I think about what hasn't changed, I think of all the gun violence and it really, like I, you start to think about how numb we are to the gun violence and how literally nothing has changed. I mean, you look at Boulder, Atlanta, Indianapolis, like nothing has changed. And, you know, you do research on, um, you know, the, the initiatives that Joe Biden wants to put forth, right? And they talk about these ghost gun kits and then you tie it in with the pandemic. And I know Maggie always talk about this, all the violence of people who had to shelter in place with somebody who was violent. And that really bothers me that this conversation we could have been having a year ago, two years ago, and nothing has changed. And it's a heavy topic, but um, I, I, I just, I wanna see change. So I'll jump in here <clears throat> again, uh, heavy. I mean, personally, lots have changed, but we won't get into that because I think Emily, the question was politically, um, what has changed? Um, <clears throat> and it's, it's sad to me, and I know probably this is gonna be a third rail, but I think everything is racial. And that kind of makes me really sad. I mean, everything is, is kind of has a racial, you know, race, racial tint to it. Um, I was hoping that the 21st century, or not even I was hoping, I was led to believe that the 21st century was going to be the post-racial kind of century, um, but I feel like going the other way, and that really, it wears me out, and it's, 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 it's hard to talk about, it's hard to read about, and it's, it's really not, uh, not a good, uh, uh, a good look for us as a country. And I'm hoping that we can kind of transcend that at, at some point, hopefully in this presidency, but certainly um, in the next uh, you know, 50 years. 
Um, Dad, I will say, it you out, think about how it's wearing on communities of color. I know that you tend to believe that we are post-racial, but the fact of the matter is that we are not. Um, I urge you to do some reading on the effects of redlining, how pretty much every major motorway in our country was built through communities of color, how um, like the just inherited wealth of white families in America has placed us at different places. While I know you're immediately gonna say, so you're saying no black person in America can receive an education. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there are divides racially in our country and that is proven statistically. Um, and so I just, that was very frustrating for me to hear because although I, if you had phrased your point in a different way, I probably would have believed you. Cause again, you know, we want this idyllic, beautiful world where we're all, you know, getting along and we have true equity. And I think that you also want that true equity, definitely. Um, but we have, you know, miles to go before we sleep on that. So just saying, I hope we move on is not the, the take that I would push forward with that. I would say, let's, you know, continue the fight for equity and hope that we can move to a post-racial world. Um, I would just say, I guess a little bit to give Dad the benefit of the doubt. I think that an interesting thing this year has been that a lot of people who like our family are very privileged and have had the freedom to pretend that we live in a post-racial world have been forced out of that comfort zone, right? Like not just from the protests this summer, but in, you're right, Dad, that we're talking about race more. We're having better conversations, right? Like even on The Bachelor, right? That we suddenly had like, you know, at the, you know, after the final rose, suddenly needing to like moderate a conversation on like, well, what is racism? And I actually think that that's, I think it's a, I don't want to call it a good thing, but I think that like the scars have been exposed, right? Like we ripped off the bandaid this year. And, you know, I think that, you know, you can't, I don't know, Sarah, you're the healthcare professional, but like, you know, you can't heal things until you get to the root of it, right? That's why like in old tiny movies are always like re-breaking bones and stuff. Like we've got to, you know, we've got to re-break the bones so that it can set correctly. Um, which actually ties in a little bit to what I was thinking about of like what politically has changed this year. I generally think that not much has changed politically, but I do think that a lot has changed socially that impacts politics. And I'm thinking a lot, you know, in the early Trump presidency, there was like a joke, particularly among like white leftists that protesting was the new brunch. And I think that that really came to light this year, right? That like, Nobody felt good about leaving their homes, but you were willing to make that sacrifice to leave your home to go to a protest in June. And suddenly that was like the only, literally the only time you were allowed to see people was through political engagement. And I heard of, you know, people going on like dates at like first dates at protests because, you know, you, and I think that that is weird, but I think it's changing. And I also think that this year has forced us to form more, more cohesive communities, right? And I think that I know of a lot of people who have formed you know, book clubs or social justice groups or whatever that are meeting regularly on Zoom. And I think it's gonna, I think that the way we form community is changing and the way we interact with our 
communities are changing. And I'm going to be really interested to see how that continues once, you know, we are all vaccinated and can leave our homes again. Um, Maggie, I think that your point about like the socialization, socialization is not the right word. The, I don't know, the community-based um, activism is really interesting. And it's also interesting from your perspective as someone who does not have Instagram. Because when you started talking about it as a positive of like the social engagement of activism, I immediately was like, if I see one more, so you want to talk about infographic on someone's Instagram story, I'm going to lose my mind. But also it's nice to know that you can form coalitions with people. Like I have a new coworker um, who recently, who like I followed on Instagram and she does post like pretty regularly social justice type things. And I'm like, okay, like I have a potential friend in this woman who like, I already knew that I liked at work, but to know that I have similar political leanings as her, I feel a lot more um, like driven to pursue that friendship. But also there are some people who you're like, okay, well, you posted a black square, but I did hear you use the N word at the bar the other day. So stuff like that is um, that performative part of that kind of, it's that there's always gonna be tension, which is hard. But I do feel like, again, we have to search for the positive and the positive is that we are coming together as a community. Yeah, I think that on Instagram definitely is a huge conversation of like activism versus activism. And um, you're right, Maggie, that what has happened over the past year has made people a lot more aware, which is a really, really good thing. Um, that more people are more aware and they want to talk about and they want to engage with social issues. Um, and I think that that's an amazing energy that we have now. I just hope that in the next couple of years, we kind of create a good place to funnel that energy into. Because right now, I don't think that Insta posting Instagram graphics, okay, it displays that you're interested in learning more and you're interested in getting more engaged. But how can we actually mobilize those people towards actual social change, right? How can we take them from being interested and in being aware to doing the work and doing the work past just voting, you know, because voting is great and voting, but voting comes around, only comes around every couple of years or every couple of months. Um, and we need to figure out a way to like actually harness that energy and harness that power, especially of young people and of high school and college students who are now so much more aware and so much more engaged with these issues um, and just don't have anywhere to put it. So how can we take that slacktivism and turn it into actual real activism, because I do think that a lot of people who are posting on Instagram do want to be engaged in a more substantial way. They're just not not sure exactly how to do it. Um, anyway, youth mobilization efforts and youth outreach efforts are great. And every youth organizer is amazing. So um, I have a couple things to add. So first of all, like when I was talking about social engagement, I was actually talking less about like social media posting and more about like community coalitions that are I see forming around me, which I just think are really interesting. But I also think that yes, like the performative socialism or performative activism is fascinating. And my, you know what trend is bad on Instagram when people on Twitter are making fun of it and the black squares on Instagram were being mocked on Twitter like 30 minutes into the day. And you know, there was so much, right? There was like logistically bad things that were happening by like the misuse of the hashtags with those black squares. And then there's, and right, and there's the performativeness of people who are like deeply racist at posting the black square. And then there's like the Emma Watsons of the world 
who posted their black square for like a day and then deleted it because it didn't go for their Instagram aesthetic. Like, you know, it just, um, yeah, the, the black squares were an interesting case study in blacktivism gone very, very wrong. Which isn't to say though that social media activism can't be useful. Right, because social media can be used to mobilize people, can be used to access so many people. And if you use it in the right way and you engage the right people and then you give them a place to put their energy, they can create so much change. And this is just, you know, this is my my campaign brain kind of going crazy of like, if you have all of the all of these people who want to do something, like why aren't the powers that be tapping into that that base? Um and I, yeah. So anyway, all of like the different campaigns and everything that have started using social media in engaging young people in both like volunteering and voting are gaining a lot more traction because they're getting that like grassroots support. And that grassroots support is going to be so important to like getting progressive legislation through Congress um, and getting progressive leaders elected on all levels of government. It's also like, this is me rambling now, but it's also like that, that kind of like grassroots support and that online support is the way to get people more engaged in local government because people don't, people a lot of the times don't pay attention to, they don't care about what's going on in the local level. But if you're able to create that online engagement, you're able to get people to care about issues that are going on right in front of them. And that those issues are gonna you know directly affect them every day, but people don't care about who's running for sheriff and who's running for, you know, different people on like the county and the local level. But those are really, really important decisions that again are going to affect them every day. If you're able to create that digital mobilization, able to tap into those energy bases, able to generate a lot more traction there. But anyway, that's just my ramble. Anyone have any, any more thoughts on this, on this topic before we wrap up? I was just gonna do my little Tennessee local politics rant, but I don't, it's not that important. I want everyone to keep an eye out for Odessa Kelly's name because she's primarying Jim Cooper and I want the monarchy of Cooper to go down. I feel strongly that a brother, two brothers should not be one, the mayor of the, mo, metro, the biggest metropolitan city in Tennessee and the um, state congressman and their dad was also a state congressman. Like, I just don't like it. it. Rubs me the wrong way. Also, Jim is like a sitting duck lambo, and I want Odessa to primary that SHIT out of it. So keep an eye out because she's being endorsed by the same people who got AOC elected. So I feel like she's going to have some of that social media buzz, you know? We're now going to move on to our last segment, which is talking about our favorite story or our most insane story, whichever one, from the last semester, which I know I'm the only one in school, so I don't know why I framed it as semester, but uh, I did. So that's basically anything from January until now. So any story that was very, very important to you, Dad, I'll let you, I'll let you kick it off. Okay, well, again, I think we could do a whole show on this one issue, um, Emily. So a couple things that I that I really like before I get to the one that I really, really like. Uh, first is um, poor Major Biden. Uh, the Major Biden watch is on. And so I'm a little kind of interested in that from a People Magazine point of view. Um, the other is, um, uh, really, the other is, uh, 
Amazon has really become the biggest kahuna in the bunch here. Uh, during, uh, you know, during the pandemic, their profit was up 200% and they had directly quarter earnings and they have an additional 50 million prime subscribers. So if you wanna talk about underlying trends, um, Amazon is the big winner in, in pandemic uh, land. Um, but my big, big news that I'm really excited about that I don't understand why everybody isn't talking about it and we're just mar not marching up and down the street is that we freaking landed on Mars. Okay, people, I'm talking about Mars. We went to Mars, okay? Mars, do I have to say that again? We went to Mars. How we're all not talking about that, celebrating that, trumpeting that, I just don't understand. So I think this should be called the Mars issue of Sheep's Wheels. All right, so I'm gonna change the topic a little bit. So one of the things that I think suits my family is uh, the vaccines. I know Emily is the only one of us who's not vaccinated because she's just become eligible. But um, I read an article that I found so funny that just completely suits our family that, you know, the vaccines are, you know, pretty much like we're going to split into a dystopian novel and break out into our war teams. And I like the definition of each um, vaccine. So the Pfizer vaccine is the ruling class. And Moderna is, sorry, we can't all be CEOs. And J&J &J is the rare and limited edition. And I also like that they bring it right to Harry Potter, which we are a huge Harry Potter loving family, and that Pfizer is Gryffindor. And Moderna is Ravenclaw. And J&J &J is Hufflepuff. And knowing Maggie, I think that she will find this very funny because, you know, she considers herself a Ravenclaw and she got the Moderna. So it's a pro she didn't get the Moderna, she got the Pfizer. So um, I thought that was funny. Also, Pfizer is the Rolls Royce, Moderna is Subaru, and J&J &J is the Hyundai. I think that's so funny, too, that, you know, just separating it and dividing it up. And I think that it's just like everything else in our lives. We like to uh, classify things. But among our family, you know, Sarah, you should have gotten Moderna, the Dolly Parton vaccine. And um, I just, you know, I, I found this whole article just great and delightful. All right, so I'm going to go next because I actually realized I didn't make an important family announcement that I now identify as a Gryffindor, which has been like a big debate in my life. But I have decided that I, my like current career value more in like bravery than I do in like book smarts. Anyway, that's not my piece of news. Um, I have been focusing a lot on more local politics this year. Um, so I also have two that I'm going to do really quickly. One is overplayed, but we just need to talk about Andrew Yang and the bodega. Um, I know that <laughs> I know that probably not all of Sheep Thrills listeners are from New York, so I don't know how much they can appreciate how ridiculous that video is. But that is not a bodega. That is a grocery store. And then the man could not separate a banana from the bunch of bananas and called it a bushel of bananas. It was embarrassing. It is so upsetting that he is in the lead. I am very worried about it. But no, my real story that I want to talk about that is like truly insane. In New York City during COVID, there has been this great program called Open Streets. And Open Streets has been about um, literally like closing down streets, become more pedestrian friendly and allow more outdoor restaurants. It's been like overall a great thing for the city. It has allowed restaurants to continue to exist. It's allowed 
streets to become more pedestrian friendly. Um, the one near me does like Zumba classes a couple times a week. Like there's just like great things happening. It's a really great thing. It's a terribly funded program. So it's entirely run by volunteers and like little tiny like neighborhood volunteer groups pop up and like make their own barricades and like set them up to like mark off open streets. And in Brooklyn, there's a lot of backlash to the open streets, mostly from drivers. And in Brooklyn, there has become like a very heated fight over the barricades that has led to like some barricades were like thrown into like a lake in Prospect Park this weekend. But the real story that I wanna talk about is that there's this great video of somebody driving an Amazon truck and coming around and driving around and stealing all the barricades and putting them into an Amazon truck. To which people were like, Amazon, what gives? It was a fake truck. We have no idea where the truck came from. The general rumor is that it's probably NYPD, but we're not sure that somebody just made a fake Amazon truck and then went around stealing barricades. Like that is an actual thing that happened like last week or the week before in Brooklyn. And it's ridiculous. And I don't often think about New York City politics as local politics because it's New York City, but um, I'm really, really into the open street politics because it's all delightful. Um, so I guess I'm last. My insane story of the semester, again, um, is something that I asked Emily to talk about on the podcast months and months ago, and she never did, which is that Pence was experiencing homelessness after being kicked out of public housing. Um, he had not owned his own home since 2013. And he and his wife and his children were couch surfing across Indiana. I thought it was the funniest thing in the world, especially for a politician who kind of did diddly squat for the homeless population in America. Made me chuckle a little bit. Um, I just, I don't know, it, it just made me laugh. Okay, those were all perfect. Thank you guys. And Sarah, I did talk about it on a very early episode. I think it might've been like three or four. I did talk about it because that all, that story also made me extremely excited. And my story of the semester, this is a no surprise to my family members. And if you've listened to like any episode of the show, it's probably no surprise, but it's the Suez Canal boat. I love that boat so much. And it got stuck in the, it, you know, it got stuck in the Suez Canal and it held up, you know, $10 billion worth of trade. And uh, it's just, it's really important to me. And I just, as I said on the episode last week, I just really wish that boat and that boat's captain the best because I can't even imagine the amount of like emotional trauma they all went through trying to get that boat to K-turn out of the Suez Canal. Also, Major Biden, excellent choice, Dad. I wish the best for that dog as well. Mike Pence, I don't necessarily wish the best for, but I don't wish any, you know, hardship, unnecessary hardship on him. But, you know, I, I hope that he's he's now safe and housed. Um, and with that, that is the end of the episode. Um, this has been the first semester of She Thrills. Uh, it's been a really, really great time recording the show. And I'm very thankful for my family uh, for coming on this last episode of the semester and of the season uh, to kind of you know, talk about where we've been, where we are and where we're going. Uh, and yeah, again, thank you guys so much for listening. And I hope to see you all next semester. Bye.